We meet today in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1 to 14. This chapter talks of the prediction of the virgin birth of Emmanuel and of Assyria's invasion of Judah. Verses 1 and 2 of this chapter speak of the civil war between Judah and Israel with Syria allied to Israel resulting in a state of fear in Judah. Verses 3 to verse 9 tells us about the conduit or the aqueduct of the upper pool where Isaiah and his son Shear Jashub met, they meet Ahaz, king of Judah, with an encouraging word from the Lord. Verses 10 to verse 16 speak of the confirmation by the sign of the virgin birth to the house of David when Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. Verses 17 to verse 25 tell of the coming invasion of the land of Judah by Assyria, which is predicted as a judgment. Isaiah 7 verse 1 Now it came to pass, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotam, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, banded together here to oppose Pul, king of Assyria. Rezin and Pekah, having tried and failed to persuade Judah to join their act of rebellion against Assyria, turned against Judah, intending to conquer it and make it a puppet state. The record is in Second Kings chapter 16, verse 5. Ahaz now, one of the most debased rulers of the kingdom of Judah, appealed to Assyria for help, and he received it. That record is in Second Kings chapter 16, verse 7 to verse 18. The trouble began in the latter years of Jotam's reign. In connection with this crisis, Isaiah emerged as a statement prophet. That's what verse 3 would talk about in this chapter. But he failed to get his message of faith in God across. That message did not come through. He then withdrew from public life. He formed a circle of believers and wrote out his prophecies for the first time. Paul invaded Galilee and Gilead in 734 BC and defeated Damascus, the capital of Syria, in 732. He killed Rezin and eventually overthrew Samaria in 722 BC. Now Ahaz will reign for 16 years and he will be a very bad king indeed. There will be a time of civil war during his reign. It will be a time of great distress in Israel. We read from Second Kings 16 verse 3 to verse 4 saying, But Ahaz, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Ahaz here is a bad egg, and he is frightened because Israel in the northern teamed up 
with Syria, and they are coming against him. Although they do not prevail at first, Ahaz has every reason to believe that they finally will prevail. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Isaiah 7 verse 2. You see, Ahaz cannot expect the blessing of God upon him or the nation. So as a result, the alliance of Rezin, king of Syria, with Pekah, king of Israel, terrified him and his people. Previously, both Syria and Israel had attempted to take Judah. Alone they could not prevail, but together Ahaz is confident that they will be able to take Jerusalem. In spite of the fact that Ahaz is a godless king, God is not yet ready to let the people of Judah go into captivity. As we already know from history, Judah is not going to go into captivity in the north, but many years later they will be taken captive to Babylon, not to Assyria. My friend, whether you react to troubling news with a sense of desperation and despair or a quiet, confident faith will actually largely depend on the status of your relationship with God. For King Ahaz of Judah, he turned away completely from the Lord, not only practicing idolatry, but even sacrificing his own children as burnt offerings to pagan gods. When he heard that Syria had, and Israel had formed an alliance and were preparing to attack, he had no faith to fall back on. Instead, he became so frightened that his heart began shaking like a tree in the wind. In his mercy, God told Isaiah to help Ahaz gain some perspective here by taking a long-term view of the forces, aligning themselves against him and his people. The prophet pointed out trends that would mean the demise of Ahaz's enemy within 65 years. That is what verse 8 will tell us. So instead of anxious desperation, Ahaz was invited to exercise quiet faith in the Lord. In a similar way, my friend, believers today are called to take a different view of time and the events of history. The Bible helps us gain perspective by taking a long-term view of history's outcomes, not just the short-lived gains or losses from year to year. As God's people, we are part of a process spanning generations in which we are building on the legacy of our predecessors and continuing to the future of our successors. From that perspective, today's terrors can become tomorrow's joys. Is that your perspective, my friend? Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashab, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Isaiah 7 verse 3. We see here, because God is not ready to deliver the kingdom of Judah into captivity, he wants to encourage the king, so he will not make an unwise and frantic alliance with Egypt. 
God tells Isaiah to meet Ahaz and he tells him to go and, and meet him with his son. His son's name is Shea Jashub. And that name is an interesting name again because it says the remnant shall return. Through the name of his son, God was still communicating a strong message to Isaiah. The remnant shall return. Now, there are several things we need to look at in this verse. First of all, Isaiah is to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool. The place where he is to meet the king is suggestive as well. It is from this aqueduct or conduit that the life-giving waters pour for thirsty Jerusalem. It is here that the people can quench their thirst. Now, you can't get much satisfaction from a pipe filled with water. You must have a spigot on it somewhere. You must go to the place where the water comes out of the pipe. Where it is coming out, that's where there is life. Now, my friend, this is very symbolic of the fact that you are not going to get any blessing out of that house of David. But way down at the end of his line, one is coming as the water of life. That one was the Lord Jesus Christ. He came in the line of David to bring the water of life. And he said, I am the living water. Isaiah is to meet the king at the upper pool. The word for pool is bereka from the root word meaning blessing. This same word is used in Psalm 84 verse 6. The rain also fills the pools. Everywhere else it is rendered blessing. Now that is an interesting thing. Notice also that it is the upper pool. Upper is the word used over 30 times for the most high. You may recall that it was said of the one who came out to minister to Abraham that he was the priest of the Most High God in Genesis 14 verse 18. Now the blessings of the Most High God was given at the end of the aqueduct when Jesus came into the world in the highway of the fullest field. Now the highway is a path which is elevated above the surrounding land to keep the traveler's feet clean. Now, the spiritual application of the word highway is made very clear in Proverbs 16, verse 17. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. This highway is the way of holiness. Isaiah will use this same figure in Isaiah 35, verse 8. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. This very interesting symbolism refers to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Notice also that the meeting was to take place in the fullest field. The fullest field was the place where people went to wash their clothes. It was the laundry of that day. Now, applying this to our own lives... If we want to get our lives cleansed, we must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Isaiah 7, verse 4 to verse 9. And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Raisin and Syria, and the son of Ramalia, 
because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Here, God has never asked anyone to believe anything that does not rest upon a foundation. Faith does not mean to move blindly into some area and say, Oh, I'm trusting God. That is actually foolish. God never asks us to take a leap in the dark. He asks us to believe and trust something which rests upon a firm foundation. And it is the only foundation. First Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11 tells us, For no other foundation can any man lay than that already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any person is an honest believer and sincere who wants to know God, he will come to a serving faith. That is the problem now with King Ahaz. He doesn't mean business with God, so he doesn't believe even God's message. Listen to him now. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Isaiah 7, verse 10 to verse 11. My friend, God knows that Ahaz does not have faith, and he is willing to give the king faith. But Ahaz is nothing but a religious fraud. And there are a lot of those people around today. Listen to his false piety. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Isaiah 7 verse 12. Now, isn't that sweet of him to say that? While Ahaz's response sounds very religious here, it is actually a sign of his dependence upon men instead of God. He sounds so nice, but he is one of the biggest hypocrites you will find in Scripture. This sort of thing is sickening, and I believe God feels that way about it even today. Isaiah 7 verse 13 Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Isaiah 7 verse 13. You see, God says to this unbelieving king, I am not asking you to believe my message just because Isaiah said it. I want to put a foundation under it. I want to give you a supernatural sign so that you will know that the message is from me. But Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. So God is going to give a sign, not to Ahaz, but to the whole house of David. Isaiah 7 verse 14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Emmanuel. In Matthew, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with a child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child, and be a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew 1 verse 18 to verse 23. Isaiah 7 verse 14 has become one of the most controversial verses in scripture because of the prophecy concerning the virgin birth. Unbelievers have quite naturally discounted it and have sought desperately but in vain for a loophole to reject the virgin birth. The battle has been worked about the meaning of the Hebrew word Alma, which is translated virgin. The fact that the angel quotes this prophecy in Isaiah 14 to Joseph has an explanation for Mary's being with a child before her marriage to him is satisfactory evidence that the prophecy referred to an unmarried woman who had a son without a physical conduct with any man. The word used by Matthew in Matthew 1 verse 23 is the Greek word panthenos, which definitely means a virgin. The same Greek word was used for the Panthenon, the Greek temple, to the goddess Athena, which the Greeks characterized as being a virgin. When the revised standard version of the Bible was first published, the Hebrew word Alma was translated young woman with virgin in the footnotes, of course. It should have been reversed, actually. Their argument was that Alma meant only a young woman. While it is true that there are places in scriptures where it is translated young woman, it is evident here that it means virgin. For example, when Abraham's servant went to Haran in search of a bride for Isaac, and he prayed that God would direct him to the right girl, this is how Rebekah was described in Genesis 24 verse 16. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. The word young woman is the Hebrew word Nara, meaning damsel, but that she was a virgin was made clear also. Then when the servant was rehearsing this experience of praying for God's guidance, he said, Behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water. 
Genesis 24 verse 43. Now the Hebrew word Alma is translated virgin. I don't think that anyone could misunderstand what is being said here. When the word Alma was used, it referred to a virgin young woman. That is, one who had no sexual relationship with a man. Now, how would the people of Isaiah's generation know if this prediction is true? Well, the virgin birth of Christ would come to pass just as Isaiah said it would, because God had spoken through this same prophet Isaiah on many other things that were fulfilled during the days in which he spoke them. One of them was his prophecy about Hezekiah and the Assyrians, which we shall actually see in the historic section of Isaiah. The Assyrians once gathered outside the walls of Jerusalem, and they were 150,000 strong men there. Things looked bad for Jerusalem. It looked as if the city would fall. So Hezekiah went into the temple, got down on his knees, and he fell on his face before God. He cried out for deliverance, and God sent Isaiah to him with a message. Isaiah told Hezekiah that he didn't have to worry. The Assyrians would not come into the city, nor would they even take it. In fact, Isaiah told the king that not even one arrow would be shot into Jerusalem. That is exactly what happened. What Isaiah had told Hezekiah came true. And the New Testament bears witness to the fact that the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ came to pass exactly as Isaiah had predicted. This is a trustworthy word. It comes to us to show us that Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, he came as a man so that we who could not save ourselves would be brought into a relationship with God. Once again, let me remind you, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men can become the sons of God. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please write to the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park 1620, South Africa. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me give you that address again. It's the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa.